entered the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You know, David, in listening again to the playback of last week's show, I think you might have solved the UFO mystery. Really? Yes. Me? Yes. How did okay. I do that? Tell me. Mother Earth is a living organism. Mm-hmm. You said that Mother Earth would take care of itself. So if mankind does too many things to screw up the environment, it would fight back and take care of mankind, okay? Indeed, yeah. So what if Mother Earth is sending us UFOs, space people, coming here to tell us that we are destroying our environment and we've got to get our acts together? Maybe it is hmm. the great cosmic consciousness of Mother Earth that is sending us the UFOs. Hmm. That sounds as viable as any other theory that I've heard, Gene. That's not bad. Did I come up with that? Well, I was looking at the implications of what you said. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I said, well, okay, let's talk about that book. Did you ever read the book that Carl Jung wrote years ago? About the uh, UFO stuff? Right. Suggesting that yeah. it was part of our collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. Hmm. What are we but the product of this planet? One of the biggest problems I have the very first time I started reading the Bible was that it, it seemed to me, Gene, that part of what the Bible did at the very beginning of the book was to set up the earth to be something that was a resource for humans. That, uh, you know, I, and I don't have a Bible in front of me, but there was something about the earth being the domain of man or man held dominion over the planet and its creatures and that this stuff was all ours to do with as we wanted that god made the earth and all of its great creations for for our use and that always bothered me because i thought if the earth was not happy with us if the earth felt that we were hurting it wouldn't the earth take action i mean truly take action you think about humanity in the face of great natural calamities, or even a more basic thing than that. Take the most powerful, the strongest, the, mo- the wealthiest human on the earth, drop them into the middle of the Pacific Ocean. How long will they last? Not very long. So <laughs> this Five minutes that, if they're lucky. Well, you know, maybe a little longer, but, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're fish food, man. So it comes down to the real understanding of the dynamic of power between humans and the planet we are a subset of this planet we're not even we're not even the predominant life form on this planet that you take all the ants in my library here somewhere i have a couple of really fantastic books by a scientist by the name of wilson eo wilson and um one of these books it talks about the biomass of ants that if you took all the ants on the planet and you took all the humans on the planet the ants weigh twice what we weigh so just in terms of just sheer weight the ants are the predominant species on the planet not humans where did we get this idea that this planet is ours to do with as we please i I never well the bible's where we got that idea right well i think about this also what if the ants decided that they didn't like it well uh we would be in big trouble when i was growing up in south america gene i knew that down in brazil in the brazilian rainforest there was a type of ant called the marabunta ant. And there are a couple of movies that have been made about this. I think there's a movie with um, Humphrey Bogart. Anyway, let somebody look that up on IMDb. But the point is that the marabunta ants, when they gather and they march across the forest, 
they essentially leave a swath of destruction. Nothing survives this trail of ants. If you throw a human into that trail, they are ant lunch. Anything that gets in the way of these ants is gone. They're just like history. The latest uh, edition of New Yorker magazine, maybe a week or two ago, has an article about this, um, and I don't remember the technical term for a spider specialist, but this gal who goes around collecting spiders and arachna something. Anyway, in this article, there's this point made that if spiders ate as much human meat as they eat insect meat, basically we wouldn't last more than a few days. The spiders would decimate every human on the planet if we were their target food source. So our technology makes us feel very mighty, very powerful, but at the end of the day, we're worm food. We're not, we we like to think we're these incredibly noble creatures, and I think it's true that humans can do very noble things, but I think it's also true that if you take a human and put that human in a situation, any human, it doesn't matter where they come from, what their background is, what their culture is, what their education is, put a human in a situation where they're really hungry, like really hungry, like the kind of hunger that probably not many Americans would really understand, real core hunger, like third world hunger, where you haven't had a meal in days and in weeks, you're eating morsels, and that human will become very dangerous. All the noble aspects of humanity will quickly fade away, and that human will be reduced to a series of res- of responses to its environment. It will become completely reactive, and all intellectual uh, potential, all noble actions go right out the window. And at that moment is when you really understand that we are animals. We are animals that have been granted some level of consciousness that have been granted some level of awareness and perhaps the ability of really evolving consciously but that's if we choose to do that otherwise we're uh you know um religious fundamentalists (laughs) (laughs) we have an interesting lineup today first we're going to talk to your friend michael miley who was here a few months ago talking about remote viewing and some consciousness expansion. And now you've brought him back for some other things about specifically his UFO research, which is extensive. Would you give us a little bit of an idea of what's happening here? Well, I I think we should really leave that up to Michael. But I know that back in the time when I spent time around Michael in Northern California, we lived not too far from each other, and we used to get together and have discussions about the nature of UFOs, the question of what are they, where do they come from, Michael had done a lot of writing work for UFO Magazine. He was a contributing editor for some number of years, and um, he was really fascinated by the topic. And he and I had long discussions about what these things really might be. And uh, we didn't really talk about this when we had Michael on last time, so I thought it would be a great idea to bring him back. And the reason for that, Gene, is that it seems like the most popular topic on this show is, is clearly everything that's UFO related. For any number of reasons, it seems to be the main focus of the show, and I don't necessarily want it to be that way. I think we both like to have the show live up to its namesake. This is the Paracast where we talk about paranormal topics of all flavors and colors, but um, UFOs are obviously at the very top of that list, and Michael has a lot of thoughts, has a lot of, well, I won't say conclusions, he has a lot of research that led him to think 
that certain things are more likely than others with regards to where these things might come from. And I thought just about now would be a good time to have Michael back and to get him to share some of his thoughts about that. Also, I was watching a documentary on crop circles, and lo and behold, Michael shows up in it. So that's a topic we haven't talked about in a while, and uh, I'd like to find out what experiences he had in researching crop circles in England, and if indeed he personally felt anything strange about being in the presence of crop circles. In part two of the PowerCast, we'll hear from Ann Druffel. She's author of Firestorm, subtitled Dr. James E. McDonald's Fight for UFO Science, plus other books including Standing in God's Light and How to Defend Yourself Against Alien Abduction. Coming up in part two of the PowerCast, and now coming up next, we'll hear from Michael Miley. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception, because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, thepowercast.com. That's thepowercast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Michael, many years ago, you and I spent quality time talking about all of the research work that you had been doing in relation to trying to understand the reality, quote-unquote, about the UFO phenomenon. And Mm -hmm. we've been talking about... Yeah, I mean, we had a few conversations out in West Marin surrounded by the really lovely redwood air that I miss so very much. Mm, Um, You're still up there. It's still happening over here. We've still got lots of redwoods. I uh, I love coming out there at least once a year just to breathe that air. Mm -hmm. But um, we had a lot of discussions about this, Michael, and what what I'm curious to know, you, you did a lot of research into this area. You looked into many, many cases, and I'll cut right to the chase here. Well, let's start with a question. 
What were some of the most compelling cases that you ran into? And we don't need to go into tremendous specifics, but give our listeners an idea about some of the things that you found talking to people who had claimed a variety of different types of sightings and who had claimed interactions with beings, alien beings, interdimensional beings. What were some of the more compelling things that you heard? Maybe not even particular cases, but... Well, actually, I do have a particular case in mind. Really? And um, it sort of, it sort of um, breaks the paradigm a bit. Um, I used to go to a dialogue group in Marin, and at the dialogue group I met this guy who had been a... Um, for many years, a psychiatric um, assistant at various, you know, uh, hospitals uh, on the West Coast here. Okay. Okay. And um, this guy uh, who I um, got to know, who became a friend of mine, eventually sort of, you know, screwed up his courage and decided to tell me about an encounter that he had had in 1973 when he was living in Vermilion, South Dakota. So the way the story goes, he and his buddies decided to do some masculine one night. Hmm. And um, there was, um, I believe, two guys who did it along with him, and one guy who was supposed to join them later, but he was working on a local college station until around 2 o'clock in the morning. So these guys were talking and, you know, discussing philosophy, and eventually the other guy did come home. He decided not to do masculine with them because he was tired from the show. And along about dawn, two of them decided to go up uh, on the roof, over to a film marquee to watch the sunrise facing east. So they climbed up, they went over to the film marquee and were leaning against the wall and watching the sunrise. And as the sunrise rose on the horizon, they saw three or four lenticular objects sort of floating near the horizon. They looked uh, kind of shimmery and silvery. And and, uh, my friend said to his friend, uh, do you see what I see? And the guy said, yes, I do see what you see, and this is really amazing. And while they were watching, a couple of these silvery disc-shaped objects sort of broke off from the crowd and kind of flew towards the midheaven, which is, you know, midway between them and the horizon. Mm -hmm. While they were doing this, they noticed that two jets were scrambled from a local uh, Air Force base, and one of the jets went after one of the objects, and the other jet went after the second object. One sort of went off to the south, uh, let's see, that would be southwest, and the other one pursued the object sort of still in the midheaven where they were looking. And they're thinking, this is unbelievable that they're watching this whole thing. While they're watching the one in the midheaven, they see the UFO. They see the jet approaching the UFO, and as the UFO uh, is as it's getting closer to the UFO, the UFO blinks out and reappears right behind the jet. And they think this is incredible. While they're watching this, then the UFO overtakes the jet, and this is what he says: the UFO engulfed the jet, and the jet disappeared. So they are like. At this point, they're laughing their ass off, and they're thinking, this is the most incredible masculine trip I've ever had in my life, you know? Right. I mean, that was, I was going to say... Well, yeah, but see, well, this is interesting. So they say, you know, we've got we've to get our, our buddy up here who hadn't dropped masculine to see if he can actually see what we're seeing. So they right. called him up. He came up, and now there's three guys on the, you know, on the ledge. So while they're watching this... The guy does confirm that he sees the silvery object, and at at some point, they're all focused on this thing, and the thing 
notices them. And what happens is the way he describes it is this thing flew towards them as if it was anticipating itself, as if it was some some way, you know, shooting part of itself ahead of itself, and then the rest of it was catching up with itself. Before they knew it, this thing was hovering right above the street in front of the marquee where they were standing. What they saw was an energy field, and it was about 20 feet in diameter, and it was pulsing. And as the thing approached them, they noticed that the pulsing of the object, or this energy field or plasma mm-hmm. object, whatever you want that to surrounded call it, the object, right? Yeah, synchronized with their heartbeats. So the pulsing of the object and their heartbeats were one pulse. And then the thing merged with them and they felt like, you know, electrical charges were going up and down their bodies. And and at one point, my friend says, he felt as if he was sort of wrapped out of his body. And he could see himself as if he was looking down at his body. He'd see himself from a certain height. And at that point, he blacked out. About 45 minutes later, he came to, and the reason why he says he notices the time lapse, he could see the sun was now high rise, you know, higher in the horizon. And his two other friends were standing, still lean, all of them leaning back against this, you know, this um, wall. The marquee, right, yeah. Yeah, the marquee. And um, they were still kind of in this cataleptic trance, and slowly they came to, and all three of them came to, and as they uh, came to, they noticed that the object had actually backed off, and it was now hovering over the street again. So it had kind where, of merged. Where were them. the jets when this was all going on? Well, the other jet, the first, remember the second, the, the jet first in the jet is absorbed one was gone. these things, right? One was gone, and the other one had gone and chased it, and I guess had gone out of view or whatever, so they don't really know what happened to that. Anyway, to make a long story short, all of these guys had a deeply transformative experience as a result of this. You know, they eventually what happened is they got down off the marquee. They were kind of all still in a trance. At one point, they're looking at the window. They still see the object up there. They notice that a woman drives up to uh, the uh, bakery across the street, gets out of the car. She's supposed to, you know, do the deliveries. They notice how she looks up where the object was and then looks down, sort of like hunkers down and just goes in, gets her bakery goods, comes out, puts them in a car and drives away. And my friend said, well, you know, and he was convinced that she had actually, some part of her had actually seen the object, sensed it, and just sort of suppressed, uh, you know, her perception of it. For the next six months, these guys had to, you know, had to sort of like reorient themselves. They went to the local university. They tried to get a psychologist interested in their in their case. The guy thought that they had had some kind of psychotic break on the masculine. Sure. You know, they couldn't convince them otherwise, and so they decided not to pursue that. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi, Mark. Tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, UFO and paranormal investigator Michael Miley joins us. And he's talking about 
a really, really unusual experience. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's one of those UFO encounters that sort of breaks the mold. I just wanted to mention one other thing because there were some really important follow-ups to this event. About uh, a month later, after uh, this this merging event, they had decided to go to. Um, to Mount Rushmore just to go visit the you know the rock formations and on the way back they decided to have a party so they came home they invited about 10 guests to their party and while they were at uh, the house along about oh I would say 11 or o'clock at night or midnight all of the power went out in the neighborhood all the way extending from where they were to the downtown area in Vermillion as they looked out the window to see what was going on in the distance what they saw is one of these pulsing plasma ufos sucking energy up in a spout from the power substation hmm. so there was this this incredibly blue energetic pulse this object was sucking the energy up and then it just sort of took off the next day they were just you know freaked out by this whole thing they went down to the substation talked to the manager there the manager didn't know what it what had happened he said you know we blew a transformer last night and it's really weird because this is a brand new transformer we have no idea why this happened it's the lowest bidder yeah right you got it you know and then he had they had some other sightings afterwards so there was a follow-up to this main you know merging event that was one of the most interesting yeah yeah, there, there are some questions, though, Michael. I mean, yeah. so you've got a, a plane that supposedly is absorbed by one of these things. Right. The other jet goes away. Right. More jets don't come back to try to find out what's happened to a jet that's now presumably missing. I, I find that a little difficult to, yeah. to believe. Well, uh, it's 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 really odd. I mean, if a jet yeah. is all of a sudden gone, you'd think that a bunch more jets would be scrambled. Uh, that that would Maybe. seem to me to make sense, right? Or, or what am I well, missing? Well, I mean, here? they weren't really around to see whether that happened. I mean, they after they had the experience, they woke up from the experience. They stayed on the ledge, uh, you know, a few minutes more, and then went down. So, it's and what does this say, Michael? I don't want to dispute yeah, sure. this whole thing, but certainly some of our listeners will suggest, gee, this may have been all some sort of hallucination. Well, there's the one guy that didn't supposedly didn't do the mess right. well. Yeah, and yeah. some others will say, well, sure, he didn't, and, and like that. Yeah, you have right, to look right. at the skepticism that's going to happen here. Sure, I mean, there's skepticism in, in every UFO encounter. If you, have, if you weren't there and you don't have any physical trace evidence... Right, then you know, it's all I mean, a story. The reason right. why I bring this up is because he was a friend of mine, and I know him, and there was really no reason for him to express to tell me this story, really. And he told me at great length the, the repercussions that this experience had for him. You know, it was, it was as if his nervous system had been rewired after the event. So this became a, you know, a big thing in his life. This was a, basically a pivotal event for him then. It was. It was a central, one of the central experiences of his life. And he and I had talked at great length about the repercussions and the effects that this event had on his psyche in the following months. He said that one of the things that uh, happened to him is that he began to have a lot of synchronistic events, and he began to see the world symbolically, mm -hmm. where all of these events had some kind of inner connection to his 
you know, his inner development in some way. So, you know, you could say that he he went into a kind of six-month altered state after the experience. Hmm. And and there were repercussions that lasted, he said, for about 10 years. They would, you know, they would sort of resurface and things like that. So this was an interesting experience for me to research because it had a very, from you know, in my speculation, it had a tie-in with the crop circle phenomenon. Yeah. Well, yeah. we'll get to that one in a moment. Sure, yeah. but uh-huh. If you research this, then um, here's a question. Sure, yeah. You say that there was a party and the power went out, and then presumably most of the people who were at the party, or maybe all of them, right, right. saw this thing hovering over the power station, sucking right. the energy. Right. Did you interview any of those other no, witnesses? No, I didn't, because, I, because I, my... My focus had been trying to understand what I call the meaning of UFO events rather than doing a lot of the hardcore physical research that really wasn't my belly work. And because I knew him, I trusted what he said to me. Of course, you know, some people would say, well, that was ridiculous. I shouldn't have done that. I should have followed up. I could still do that, you know, but um, one of the guys that was... uh, that was uh, on the ledge with him, died a year later. Third guy, I don't know whether he was in contact with him, but that, you know, that would be an interesting thing to pursue. Well, what interests me, just listening to this for the first time, is that it seemed to be a transformative experience for everyone who participated, that this one encounter literally changed their lives. Right, it did, yeah. yeah but so, we see you that. Know, in, a, in a lot of the UFO cases, we see that one encounter and this sounds like a fairly extreme encounter but for a lot of people it's even a distant sighting of a ufo seems to have some tremendous effect on them michael is the reason for that that humans are so starved for legitimate mystical experiences Mm. that this to them represents that kind of a mystical experience that leads them in a direction that is kind of diametrically opposed to a materialistic view of the universe well, I mean, I think that this guy definitely doesn't have a materialistic view of the universe. He might he might have had it beforehand, but he certainly doesn't have it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the thing the thing about this stuff is that you can you know it's it's a chicken and egg situation. You can say, oh, does a person want to have this experience, and therefore that's why they have it, you know, uh, or are they um, after the experience their worldview changes uh, and it allows for a more kind of religious or mystical perspective on the universe. You know, um, I think if I wanted to pursue the UFO phenomenon again, I mean, I've given myself a little bit of a hiatus here. Where I left it was essentially that we can't really comprehend the UFO phenomenon given our paradigm, our materialistic paradigm, because we're not really looking at the whole cosmos. We're not looking at all of the... Uh, what I would call the scope of the cosmos. There, um, there were two researchers in the UFO field who brought a, what I call a transpersonal perspective to uh, to UFO research. This was probably more, but there were two primary ones, and one was John Mack, who was the psychiatrist at, at Harvard University. And then, of course, Whitney Strieber, in a lot of his books, brought a transpersonal perspective to his, his experiences. <laughs> Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. 
And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, Mike Miley, UFO paranormal investigator, joins us. And we're trying to explore some of the meaning behind UFOs. And he came up with uh, some fascinating things about an experience that kind of changed the lives of some people. And now we're looking at the implications of this. Go ahead, please. Yeah, sure. So I came to the conclusion that as long as we don't admit into our worldview the notion that there could be a supernatural realm, and I can define that for you, we're really not equipped to make sense of the UFO phenomenon. I think that the first thing that people need to do is they need to look at the evidence for supernatural realm. You can find that evidence in uh, near-death experience research. You can find it in uh, out-of-body experience research, which is related. Those are two of the key things that point toward consciousness existing outside of the body. People have these experiences, and they've done phenomenological analysis and cross-cultural analysis of, of, of near-death experience, showing that there are common elements that people experience that are that go across cultures. And then if you tie that into out-of-body experience research, there is plenty of evidence to show that people actually can leave their bodies and remain conscious. So the question is, what realm do they go to when they're out of their body? You know, And if there is no supernatural realm, quote-unquote, then they're not going anywhere. But if there is a realm, then that's a whole aspect of reality that we need to take into account when we're thinking about UFOs. Because one of the things that is key to abduction experiences, mm-hmm. people have a lot of, I'm not saying that all abduction experiences happen at night in bed, but some of them do. And uh one of the things that people report in these abduction experiences is um, the experience of beings coming through the wall and then being taken through the wall and going towards some craft. Outside, sure, outside. sure. That's one of the things that they experience. The other thing that is very typical in this sort of encounter is what they call a sort of a, a memory lap. You know, so they have the experience, and then they come back and they say, oh, I can't remember much of the details, and they utilize something like hypnotic regression in order to recover it. Now, one of the really key interesting things about out-of-body experience research 
And the reason why I bring this up is because it may be that some abduction experiences actually occur out of the body, not in the body. Okay. One of the key things that we know about out-of-body experiences is that when a person has an experience and they come back into the body and want to remember the experience, they have to do a process whereby they, where they implant that memory in their normal memory structure because out-of-body experience is a state-specific experience and they're going to an embodied state which is another state specific experience so they have to make a translation from the out of body state to the embodied state and they have to translate the the memories of the experience in the out of body state to normal memory of, in their normal brain structure it's kind so, of like creating an alias or a linkage between the two basically exactly they've got to make some kind of uh, bridge between the two otherwise they'll forget what they what happened out of the body because it's now, not part of the actual physical memory process of the brain because it actually occurs outside of the physical brain? That's part of it. I mean, this is Charles Tart with his notion of state-specific memory. I would advise people, listeners, if they're interested in uh, the phenomenology of outer body experience, that, that they look up uh, the site of Robert Bruce. Let's see. If Robert Bruce? Robert Bruce. He's a British out-of-body experience expert who lives in Australia and he has a site. Let me get it for you. I'm sitting in front of my computer. Well, as everybody's looking for, that raises a larger question here. So you're suggesting that abduction experiences in general may involve this out-of-body type of experience. Does that lessen their possibility of being real in terms of encounters with possible aliens? Well, this is the, this is the issue. Let's assume for a moment that some encounter experiences occur in a domain that we normally consider the supernatural domain. Okay? Supernatural. Let's define... Actually, Michael, before you continue, I think it's important at this moment right now to define specifically the meaning of the term supernatural. Sure. Well, it's actually an unfortunate term because what it implies is something outside of or above of nature, and you could call it paranatural in a way above nature, but in fact it's part of nature. Nature could have other dimensions and other frequencies that we don't really normally perceive, and that's still part of the cosmos, you know. So, you know, the uh, the approach to these domains may mean that we have to develop a phenomenology of those domains, and we're just neophytes as far as that's concerned, I think. When I talk about a supernatural domain, when I was a kid, I had out-of-body experiences, and one of the things that I experienced when I was out of the body was that I was in an energy body, and this energy body was extremely sort of like a field and very um, charged and pliable. I felt as if I was, you know, vibrating from head to toe, and so... Unlike the physical body, this energy body didn't have a sort of you know distinct shape. It was like um, more like a um, it was more malleable. It could assume different shapes if it wanted to. Well, the difference and, between a solid and a field. I mean, between a solid and a right, plasma. Exactly. Where the plasma can fill an area, and the solid is sort of uh, constrained within its own area perimeter. Uh, a plasma can sort of go and fill spaces. It's, right. it, it's, it's a very, it's, it's, lines, yeah. yeah, tactically very different things. 
they're a very different thing. And so the kind of quote-unquote plasma energy field of the energy body, one of the experiences that I had as a kid was I, I woke up in my energy body in my dining room, and the first thing that occurred to me is, oh, I bet you I can go through walls and doors. So I... When I approached the door that led from my um, dining room down the hallway to the front um, porch. I went right through the door, and as I went through the door, I could feel the molecules of my energy body as if they were passing through a fog, and the fog was the structure of the door. Hmm. And I floated downstairs and went outside, and I was standing uh, on the front uh, uh, front porch in my energy body looking at, you know, nature around me. Uh, That's as much as I remember of the experience. Okay. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And we're talking about UFO research, out-of-body experiences, and lots more with Michael Miley, who makes his return visit to the show. David? Well, now that we have a definition, a working definition of supernatural, let's go back to the original point you were going to make, Michael, about how this then relates to the abduction experience. Okay, so so one of the things that I, um, I wanted to ask myself is it possible that some of these abduction experiences and some of these encounter experiences have to do with beings and craft and, and energy fields and that sort of thing that are somewhat outside of the scope of normal physical perception? So that means that unless you are equipped to see into that higher energy space, you know, these events could be happening and you're not really perceiving them. So, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that um, one of my attitudes about psychedelics, for example, is that I feel that psychedelics, first off, open the person, secondly, charge them up, and thirdly, allow them to sort of, um, they sort of generate higher level faculties perception. I don't really sort of have much truck with the notion of hallucinations really explaining very much. I'm not saying that people don't have hallucinations, but the term hallucination is really not very useful. It doesn't really tell us very much about how it is that those sorts of visionary states are engendered. They don't tell us anything about, you know, the, the structure of it, the mechanism by which it occurs and all of that stuff. These three guys are standing on a ledge. Two of them are doing psychedelics. They see this object and they can see aspects of the object, perhaps Perhaps that the guy who didn't do the psychedelics can see. They all did see the object, but they sort of perceived a higher aspect of the object, you know. So that's one thing. The other thing is that I, I noticed the curious coincidence of the fact that people have abduction experiences and cannot remember the experience and noticed how that paralleled the out-of-body experience and how people have a hard time remembering those experiences and how there has to be a memory translation between the two state-specific cases. And I began to think, oh, well, maybe there's a connection here. I'll tell you another story which um, which will help 
sort of tie in the connections here a little bit more. When I was doing research in the remote viewing field, uh, one of the people that I interviewed was Joe McMonagle, who was one of the military remote viewers who worked out of Fort Meade, Maryland. He was also part of the scientific research project that was conducted for going on 20 years at Stanford Research Institute. So during that same time, McMonagle was a remote viewer utilizing remote viewing for espionage purposes, and he was also being investigated by the Stanford Research Institute scientists because they were trying to find a way to train people to remote view. Anyway, when I was interviewing Joe one night, he told me about an experience that he had had while he was stationed in Germany. I guess this was would have been the early 60s. He was at a bar with a, um, a couple of friends of his. They had some beers. And at one point, Joe started to feel very hot, so he told his friends that he was going to go outside and get some fresh air. He walked out of the, the bar, and as he was crossing the street, he noticed that it was raining and that the raindrops were falling through his body. Hmm. And so it sort of brought him to attention, and he thought, isn't that odd? And at the same time, he heard this commotion behind him. He turns around and he looks and he sees a crowd in front of the bar, all clustered around somebody that's lying on the ground. He walks back and he looks down and he sees his own body lying there on the sidewalk. He, is, he has just had a heart attack massive coronary. The ambulance comes, they stick his body in the ambulance, they rush it to the hospital all the while he's floating above the, the ambulance. They come into the hospital, they take him into the emergency room, they do all their usual routine where they're trying to revive him. In the meantime, he's, he's floating near the ceiling and when he's floating near the ceiling, three light beings appear in the room to him and they communicate to him telepathically. They ask him, do you want to go? Do you want to stay? And he says, I want to stay. I've got a whole life in front of me. I've got all these things I want to do. And they say, that's fine. When you go back into your body, you're going to be in a lot of pain. He said, one of the things that was really curious about these light beings is that two of them were very short and one of them was tall. Hmm. And this is a very characteristic thing in alien abduction experiences mm -hmm. where people describe two short beings and a tall being who's directing the whole operation. Yeah. So I said to Joe, I said, what the hell are aliens doing in your near-death experience? And he said, that's a very interesting question, Mike. Nobody's ever asked me that. Now, you he said light beings, but you used the term aliens. Right, exactly. Because I immediately made the connection saying, why are two of these small beings and one of them a tall being? I had made the mental connection that, ha, ah, this is sort of interesting because it's related to the stories you hear about abduction experiences. And Joe didn't really say, oh, that's crazy, Mike. He actually considered the, you know, my comment. You know? But these were light beings. They didn't physically appear to be outside of the height issue. They didn't appear to be like a characteristic gray. They were light beings. Right? I just want to make sure I'm clear on this. Well, they were light beings, yes. But, you know, there are, and I can't, you know, draw 
up on them right now. I could probably go back to my notes and find other experiences where people actually experience alien beings as light beings. You know, there's mm. plenty of cases where people not just see the, you know, the, the form, but they actually see these beings in their energy, energy aspect, if you will. You know, this kind of an experience and some others, Red Whitley Strieber describes, got me to thinking that at the very least, the UFO phenomena has an aspect of it that exists in that other domain, in that higher domain, whatever you want to call it, supernatural, you know, energetic or whatever. And that if we really want to understand the phenomenon, we have to take into account that other domain. We have to make try to make sense of our relationship to that other domain. Because if we're ignorant about that other domain, not only as it exists in, in you know in the world at large, but within ourselves, then the filter by which we view all of this stuff is extremely small, very limited. That's really where my thinking goes on this stuff. So when we talk about this other domain, this kind of brings us into this area of interdimensional beings. Right. Where, right, I mean, we're, we're talking about, and I think people who deal with trying to understand UFOs had, a, had definitely have a bit of a problem bridging these realms, right. the idea that, okay, we have on one hand aliens with technology that comes from other planets on this side, right. and then on this other hand we have these interdimensional beings that are here among us, and people have a real hard time trying to create any kind of connection between these. H have you been able to create a relation of some sort that distinguishes these two things one from another, or are we talking about different manifestations of the same type of being? You know, there's a, there's another uh, line of research what I, which I found really fascinating. It was one of the first cases that I spent any time uh, looking into. I wasn't the primary researcher on it. The guy, the um, the case has to do with uh, Betty Luca or Betty Andreasen. The primary investigator over a period of 25, 30 years was Raymond Fowler. And um, her case was really rather interesting because as the case unfolded for Fowler and the other investigators that investigated Betty Luca and her husband Bob, they discovered that a lot of the experiences that Betty and Bob had involved experiences out of the body. They involved encounters with little greys, which would sometimes revert to out-of-body experiences. So she would have experiences where the being would come into the room, one of the beings would have a device, the device would create some kind of field effect, and then she would leave her body. <laughs> You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies in Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, 
Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bienney. You never know what's going to happen next. Hey, let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to paranormal researcher Michael Miley, and now we're relating UFO encounters to paranormal experiences. So go ahead, please. In Betty Lucas' case, like in a lot of abduction cases, one of the things that's really interesting is the after effects in the lives of people. They have an encounter, and, you know, they could have, you know, some sort of traumatic, post-traumatic stress disorder afterwards. You know, they're very nervous, and they can't sleep at night and all that other stuff. But one of the things that's really very interesting is that people start to have psychic experiences after their encounters. So my question to you or to anyone is, why should a UFO encounter produce psychic experiences as a residue in anybody, right? Why does psychic experience enter the discussion of UFO encounters at all, okay? So what we're talking about here is people having, as a result of their encounters, not only out-of-body experiences, but synchronicities, prophetic dreams, prophetic experiences. Uh, Betty Luca had, I think, one or two of her children were killed in a car accident, and before it happened, she had a precognitive message, which she felt came from these um, alien beings, about her son or sons getting killed in a car accident. So she had a precognitive experience that told her it was going to happen before it happened. And you find this kind of psychic phenomenon clustering around the abduction experience. And my question, again, is why should any of that be true? Well, I suppose that a skeptic listening to this would say maybe this is proof positive that all of this stuff is really happening at the subconscious level and maybe the mind is fabricating all of it. Now, uh, there are physical UFO cases that clearly contradict that notion, but I can see a skeptical mind saying, well, gee, this then starts to sound like all of the abduction experiences where there's never physical evidence. I shouldn't say never, but most of the time there's no physical evidence where there are not there are very often no corroborating witnesses that this then like a lot of psychic phenomena very possibly could all be subconscious manifestations. It's it would almost lend weight to that argument. Well, I think that uh, we have a very limited understanding of the human mind for start just for starters and the scientific paradigm takes as its basic premise that consciousness is an epiphenomenon of matter, of, of organized matter. So scientific explanation is always interested in reducing consciousness as an epiphenomenon to some physical cause. So that's the assumption it, it always takes. But you could equally take the opposite assumption, which is that the physical world, the body, is a product of some fundamental consciousness that is that pervades the universe, and this is. Well, hold on, Michael. I hear yeah. Carl, Carl Jung is calling for you. He, he wants to yeah. take well, lunch. Carl with you. Jung, it's actually Vedanta. <laughs> if you look at the uh, sort of Vedanta, ancient Vedanta perspective, 
and not just Vedanta. It's really kind of all most of the uh, mystical traditions throughout the world um, say that consciousness is the is one of the fundamental elements of reality. You can find some theoretical physicists investigating this. There's a guy at the University of Oregon called uh, Amit Goswami. Goswami. He's a theoretical physicist who's trying to apply this paradigm to science and saying that consciousness is the fundam- is the fundamental reality, not matter. So, mm. so you can really look at the world in an entirely different way than the usual scientific paradigm and account for a lot of events and a lot of experiences very, in a very kind of uh, interesting way. For example, consciousness, if it's uh, an infinite field, then it pervades all of reality. It isn't just stuck in our heads. It's something that is intrinsic to all of reality. And there's plenty of evidence to indicate that consciousness is a field. It's not just uh, this little up-up phenomenon in our brains. Well, quantum physics would, would, what we know about quantum physics would seem to support that, that uh, the state of matter really is affected rather deeply by the actual observer not just that the, that the state of matter does not exist, quote-unquote, in a vacuum, but it is affected by the, by the actual observer and at the, at, at the very tiny level of organization of matter, even more so. Right. There's psi research, however, that, that makes even more radical claims. Um, psi research, some of the research that's been done, well, yeah, I mentioned remote viewing. Remote viewing had, has been researched over, I guess at this point, probably 35 years, not just by uh, Stanford Research Institute, but by places like Princeton University, uh, the University of Amsterdam, and uh, other more private uh, organizations, in which they have basically proven that people can perceive things happening at a distance when they have no direct means to perceive that. So people can perceive what's happening in a plaza in Italy, you know, uh, 4,000 miles away or whatever, you know, however they are. But how um, are we going to relate this all to crop circles, given that we only have minutes left? Oh, we're going to have crop circles. <laughs> well, I think we're going well, to... Well, you know, the crop circle part, the reason why I brought that plasma thing up was... Yeah. People see glowing uh, plasma-like energy spheres floating over crop circles, and they've actually been photographed. Um, Steve yeah, there's been, I've seen some video footage of that. Yeah. That's very. Steve compelling. Alexander has actually photographed one of them floating over a field, and you can see it passing over the field in the middle of the day. You can see it pass over this guy who's working a tractor in one of the tram lines, mm-hmm. and the guy mm-hmm. stops in the track and looks up and sees the damn thing. You know, uh, and it was a sort of um, plasma-like ball floating above uh, the crop circles. In the minutes we have left, and I'm really sorry we're kind of jumping around with topics here. There's so many things that we wanted to talk with you about tonight. You went to England. You did some research on crop circles. I saw you in a documentary and was very uh, psyched to see you in that. Tell us really quickly, Michael, did you stand in a crop circle and feel something unusual and compelling? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I went out uh, one day. Uh, we went out looking, saw about six crop circles that day. The first two or three crop circles that I saw were clearly hoaxed. 
And it was mm-hmm. really evident that they were hoaxed because you could see the smashed stalks. The whole field felt dead. There was no real sort of organization to the smashing of the stalks apart from clearly some board had pressed them down. Right. And then I went into this one field and um, I walked into this crop circle and I could feel a charge coming from the circle. I was, I, uh, stood in the crop circle for about five or ten minutes and I started to get dizzy and I had to leave the crop circle because Mm. I was feeling overcome by the energy field in the circle. I left, I calmed down, I came back and walked back in and, you know, did my investigation. Another one I saw that day, which was really remarkable, I walked into the crop circle. It had the same sort of energy charge. I, I, uh, was sort of down on my hands and knees investigating the swirl of the crop. And one of the things I discovered was that some of the stalks were lying across each other in opposing direction, which means, and they were they were so precise that yeah. it had taken somebody taking the stalks one by one and folding them over each other, which was really ludicrous to think about. And the other thing was that the lay of the fallen crop was clearly swirled by some energy field. You could see that it was a wave that had passed through crop circle. It was very, very different lay of crop than the ones I saw that had been smashed down by boards. You so, know we're going to have to have you back to talk more about this topic because you just really laid a, uh, a big teaser down there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's like Lost season one. You have to have Lost season two, or, <laughs> yeah, right. or something exactly. of that nature. Indeed. So anyway, so yeah, I could just go on forever about this stuff. So, you know, what can I tell you? Don't it's worry, we'll give you the chance to do that, Michael. If you want to come back, we. Uh, yeah, it's, it's I love fun. talking it's, to you, man. You know. Yeah, it's great. It's really interesting stuff. It's I can't great. believe this near hour passed so quickly it's just like we started talking and suddenly we're at the end Whoa. of the period I know it's like uh, <laughs> 5 to 7 already oh my god <laughs> it's awesome so, thank you very yeah. much Michael sure, Miley yeah. UFO Great, and yeah. Paranormal Investigator for joining us once again on the yeah, Paracast it was, really fun. it was a lot of fun I hope to talk to the guys some more welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti And Truffle. Now, a lot of people who currently read or study UFOs never heard of Dr. James E. McDonald. And you have this book out, Firestorm, subtitled Dr. James E. McDonald's Fight for UFO Science. So I don't know if we should call him a forgotten figure in ufology or not, but who was he and what was his impact on the field? He was a atmospheric physicist who worked at the University of Tucson in Arizona in the Institute of Atmospheric Physics. He helped found it. He was a very brilliant scientist. Dr. McDonald had entered the publicly the, the UFO research field. And he worked with the civilians in the field from 1966 to 1971. This was the first top scientist who had ever done this. And we accepted him so gratefully that we call those years the McDonald years from 1966 to 71. And he worked mainly with researchers and investigators from the um, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, NICAP. He was a very famous atmospheric physicist. He was a, a known worldwide and uh, he traveled to various countries even to find out about top cases 
years that had happened, like in Canada and Australia and New Zealand. And uh, he came all over the United States investigating cases on site and working with subcommittees of NICAP and, and a few other scientists who had entered the field also but were afraid to come public because it would jeopardize their careers or their scientific positions that they had in universities and elsewhere. I wrote the book because I was a member of the NICAP subcommittee from 1957 through about 1975. And uh, when he entered the field with us in 1966, we were all just absolutely amazed that someone with his ability and his uh, cordiality and all of these wonderful qualities that he had was actually working with civilians like ourselves. Of course, uh, we as civilians with NICAP, we had various professional skills. You know, they were different from what he had. And what motivated his interest in the field of UFOs, given that he was a hard scientist? He had seen something in 1958, I think, together with four or five other scientists in Arizona. They were on their way south in Arizona, and it was daytime, and they saw in the west a, a peculiar object which no one could identify. It was not uh, Venus. It was not, you know, anything that could be uh, called conventional. And so he reported it to Project Blue Book, and they they, uh, they wrote back Project Blue Book, uh, thank you, Dr. McDonald. It is wonderful to get a report from someone as uh, skilled and uh, as highly regarded as yourself, and uh, that they would try to find out what it was and get back to him, and they never got back. Hmm. Surprise. That was his only actual interaction with, uh, with Blue Book and presumably Hynek? Well, that was his first interaction with Blue Book. Mm -hmm. And then in a conference, a scientific conference, I believe it was in Italy, there were cases that were going on in that country, you know, a foreign country at that time. And uh, McDonald, of course, was uh, wondering what was being done about these. And someone, uh, another scientist there assured him, oh, well, Project Blue Book is taking care of that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, McDonald didn't worry about it until he saw this thing in 1958 and knew that Project Blue Book had not gotten back to him about uh, what the thing was or if it was not identifiable that it was unconventional. So when he entered the field publicly in 1966, he went to Blue Book uh, four times in all and uh, he um, had a chance to go through all of the uh, most of the cases there they were told that nothing was classified of course he was told nothing was classified there hmm. but of course they didn't show him the classified radar visual cases that he later learned about you're so, in the paracast with gene steinberg and david vietney we're talking to ann truffle a veteran ufo researcher who worked with nicap and knew the late dr james mcdonald and i should mention the prestigious fashion in which her book firestorm is presented has an introduction by Dr. Jacques Fillet, and she's also author of Standing in God's Light in the End Times, and we'll get to that discussion later on. But now, Dr. McDonald, okay, so he went to see Project Blue Book information. They withheld the information from him. Now, how did he know this, that certain information was being withheld? Well, when he went the first time, uh, they gave him access to a lot of the files that people had never seen before. Uh, you know, uh, civilians had never seen before, or scientists like himself. And he noticed that, that uh, on cases that he had investigated himself, or that he knew of from NICAP having investigated them, that they were given, uh, that J. Allen Hynek, 
who was the a scientific consultant of Blue Book at that time, had uh, written them off as meteorites and uh, lenticular clouds and things like this. And uh, MacDonald knew that those explanations were not logical for those cases. He was familiar with these cases that he was looking at that, that Heineck had said, you know, meteorite, just uh, written off all of these things. So uh, the book Firestorm, uh, it describes his interaction with Hector Quintanilla, who was the head of Blue Book at that time. And the two of them did not get along well, shall we say. <laughs> and uh, and then later he he got acquainted with Dr. Heinick, and he, he went into Heinick's uh, office at Northwestern University. He had never met the man. He went into his office, he pounded on Heinick's desk, and he says, what are you doing? What uh, are you doing? Uh, I don't uh, recall the exact words he used, but they're in the book. And, and uh, wh why... Why did you give these illogical explanations for these good cases which should have been termed unconventional object or unidentified UFOs? And uh, he he worked with uh, Heineck. He tried to work with Heineck for about six years, but uh, Heineck at that time was still the consultant with Blue Book, and uh, he explained, he tried to explain to McDonald that he needed the job because he had to send his children to college, you see. Mm. But uh, after uh, McDonald died tragically, uh, Dr. Heineck did quit the job as consultant at Blue Book because Blue Book had, had um, folded in 1969. And uh, he, he became the, uh, what you call the dean of UFO research. It was Heineck then that worked with civilian UFO researchers in NICAP and MUFON and QFOS. Now, Dr. McDonald died at a relatively young age. Can you tell our listeners what happened to him about his untimely death? He was, uh, he was only 51, and uh, it was uh, just about the saddest thing that ever happened to a lot of us in the UFO field. He apparently committed suicide. Mm -hmm. uh, he tried once uh, to commit suicide uh, you know, with a, with a gun, but he only succeeded in uh, blinding himself partially because it hit the optic nerve, the bullet. But then he, he came back from that, and he was going to go ahead with his work, and he had plans on how to work, you know, almost ha almost blind. But then, suddenly, he went out to the desert, assumingly alone, and uh, shot himself again under a bridge. And uh, this time, he unfortunately succeeded. But we don't we don't really know what inspired him to commit suicide because he was such a wonderful sociable uh, humorous man uh, but there was tr trouble in his family apparently he had uh, neglected his wife because of his travels uh, concerned with UFOs as well as his other work as well as his atmospheric physics work he did had not spent enough time with his wife Betsy and uh, she had uh, fallen in love uh, with uh, a younger man at an organization that she belonged mm. to. And so it was, um, uh, Betsy uh, says that it was depression caused by the, uh, the pending divorce that caused him to commit suicide. But mm. uh, in my book, Firestorm, I present two hypotheses. One, his suicide was brought on by normal depression. Two, that it had been brought on by other forces 
uh, some of them uh, governmental, some of them uh, we don't know what uh, had been uh, causing him to become depressed. But there's a lot of evidence that perhaps his depression was brought on by, uh, shall we say, governmental secret. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at one eight 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 ufo maga or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com and they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you've heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. We're proud to be talking to Ann Truffle. She's author of several important books on UFOs and other subjects, and the one we're talking about now is Firestorm, subtitled Dr. James E. McDonald's Fight for UFO Science. Now, I dimly remember that in the wake of his death, some people did attribute it to some kind of sinister events, some outside influences that caused him to take his own life. Now, was there ever any question that he took his own life? It's not going to be like a legend like in Hollywood where the actor who played Superman on TV, George Reeves, supposedly shot himself, but then to this day they say, no, that's not what happened. So with Dr. McDonald, is there any dispute at all that he did take his own life? To his family, there is no dispute, and I respect Betsy. And, and her opinion about this because she was right there, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Betsy McDonald is a wonderful person who helped me with the book. She, she was just a, a wonderful person and still is. But there is information that I was able to gather from numerous researchers in the field who had information about what was happening to McDonald a few months before he tried to... Com- the suicide the first time and then a few months later actually succeeded and uh, I I am inclined to believe that he was helped along shall we say uh, I uh, I do a lot of psychic archaeology you see and 
uh, I'm not psychic myself, but I use the very finest psychics on, on psychic archaeology projects. And uh, I have asked uh, seven of the finest psychics that anybody could find in the world, and six of them have described that he was not alone when he died and uh, that, that there were two other men with him. So, and a couple, a couple of these psychics uh, specify that the, the two men led him uh, to the to the uh, the final uh, uh, shooting that ended his life. So, if someone else didn't pull the trigger, he was maybe encouraged to do so. Basically, based on what you're saying, that that is what the uh, the autopsy that I have been able to get a partial autopsy indicates that the gun was at a point where it could have been held uh, by his hand uh, when he uh, when he shot himself. So uh, we we don't know. I'm still working on it. It's it's an ongoing project, but very well, difficult. You see, for uh, when McDonald died, the whole field grieved, and I mean real grief. And I grieved for uh, Jim McDonald for 20 years. I kept hmm. praying that he would, you know, uh, go to heaven and things like this. And then finally, when I did have the chance to write a book about him, this was the only thing that settled my mind that he was all right and, and the grief uh, could stop. That was a very noble thing to do. Given that you're well, cited... it's wonderful to, to have the chance. Well, sure, absolutely. It makes me want to ask you some questions, though, Anne. If indeed there was some sort of nefarious... Um, underpinning that would have led to him being potentially murdered let's say as an assisted suicide uh, that sounds terrible what was dr mcdonald's stance regarding the reality of ufos had he been getting close to something that someone didn't want him to uh his stance throughout the years was a very hypothetical a very tentative hypothesis that UFOs might be extraterrestrial in nature. And he meant the UFOs that uh, fly in the sky or chased by jet pilots, caught on radar and seen by uh, reliable witnesses at the same time they are being caught on radar. You see, this is what he called empirical evidence, mm-hmm. uh, that, that uh, these things were unidentified flying craft. But I guess at that point, the abduction scenario was still not as well known as it is today. So seventy-three started, but he knew Betty and Barney yeah. Hill, and he had they loved him too. And uh, he had uh, even found a, a radar case in a nearby military base, which uh, of a of an object caught on radar but not seen, which. It was at the same time that the the object was seen landed by Betty and Barney Hill. So Mm -hmm. this is the way he investigated just thoroughly everything. But he he never had any ideas as to what might have happened to Betty and Barney Hill. So he, he was a true scientist in that he was looking at data and triangulation of data. It doesn't sound to me like... He was the kind of person that prescribed to what I guess we now know in ufology as uh, sort of the belief system approach. He wanted to have an actual understanding of what was going on and use data to try to arrive at that understanding. Is that correct? Uh, he was after scientific documentation, you see. A- mm-hmm. And uh, when, uh, when Blue Book ended, 
All of the files were uh, moved to another place, uh, into archives. He got access into the archives of Project Blue Book, and for the first time anybody ever saw them, there were more than a hundred radar visual cases, which he considered uh, the most, the best empirical evidence that these things were physical craft, you know, physical objects. That, that were being chased by uh, jet pilots and caught on radar, etc. And uh, he he uh, collected a hundred of the finest RV cases. That's what he called them, radar visual cases. And he brought them home, and he was going to work on them and write a book, uh, both about the radar visual cases, which mm-hmm. constituted empirical evidence that these were physical, unidentified flying craft. And, um, well, I'm curious how he was able to get access to this information. This sounds like the kind of stuff that we can't even vaguely get a hold of today. How was he able to do this? I don't know. It, it might have been his, <laughs> um, you know, his uh, scientific, uh, or maybe the government at that time didn't realize how important these radar visual cases would be to a scientist like McDonald. And uh, they, you know, they slipped up and let him see them, and he copied a hundred of them, and they're in his files archived at the University of Arizona Library. Really? Yes. So yes, but but he, he was going to go through each file and get the very best information out of each one and write a book, which would indicate that there was empirical evidence that UFOs were real. And he was going, uh, this was for the intent of convincing the scientific community at large that UFOs, the, the phenomenon, was a serious scientific question that should be studied on an interdisciplinary basis. And he was the man who got the closest to to this than anyone ever has, you see. And hmm. for that reason, I, I think that's why whatever it is, uh, MJ-12, whatever you want to call it, government sources went after him and got him out of the way. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Anne Druffel. And we're talking about her book, Firestorm, Dr. James E. McDonald's Fight for UFO Science. So you're saying that the powers that be, be it secret government, men in black, whatever, you think they went after Dr. McDonald and they hastened his departure? Well, I would say that that is a logical hypothesis. Uh, I won't say that I believe it or, or that it's proven or that it's a theory, but it certainly is a logical hypothesis. Now, has anybody gone after those files, And It seems like that amount of hard evidence is something that would be gold to anybody doing research in this field. Has anybody attempted to reconstruct the um, research that uh, Dr. McDonald had created of these cases? Well, you see, uh, it would take a most remarkable mind. It would take a mind that not only knew everything about radar, which which uh, McDonald had learned, mm-hmm. but also atmospheric physics. Uh, a, a great many types of science would uh, be involved in 
in the uh, study of these files. And at his wife found someone whom, he, whom she thought would have uh, filled the bill to, to uh, work on the files the way McDonald would have. This was after McDonald died. And this man was a scientist in, um, in Australia. And so she was going to send the files to him. Oh, in fact, she did send copies of the files to him. But all of a sudden, this scientist went off into another uh, field of research uh, that the Australian government apparently had, had given him a grant for. So I also wonder if, if maybe this man, uh, this scientist, who would have been able to do the work that McDonald wanted done, but was given a grant just to sort of um, get him away from it. Take him off but, the But the files are in the archives, and so far uh, no, nobody that I know of has, uh, has studied those 100 files and written about them the way McDonald intended to. And a larger issue here, is there a person in the UFO field today that we could say is comparable to a Dr. McDonald or a Dr. J. Allen Hynek? Do you know of any? Can we name anybody who would fit into that category? Well, I, I know many fine scientists in the field, uh, but there is none that, that had such a broad understanding of many fields of science that, that McDonald did. You see, the scientists I know stick to one or two fields of science. But McDonald's mind was the type that whenever he met any kind of scientific question, even though it wasn't an atmospheric physics problem, he would learn uh, what he had to, to learn, and he would, go, he would go after that and solve that problem. He had an inquiring mind like no one that I have n never met I don't know if there is another McDonald here, but I would hope so. A lot of us pray that, that there is. And you mentioned that you first interacted with Dr. McDonald through NICAP. How did you get involved with that organization? Well, uh, I had seen something in 1945 when I, when I was a kid, a school kid. And this was in Long Beach, California, and uh, at my home. And uh, it was a... It was a, uh, a roundish, yellow-white orb in the sky, and this was a broad daylight. And uh, this thing intrigued me because I, I, even at the age of nine, I had begun to read astronomy books, and I knew that this thing wasn't supposed to be there. And so I watched it for an hour and a half, which traveled from north-northeast to the north-northwest, and my mother saw it with me. And then suddenly at the end of an hour and a half, the thing, uh, the only thing I could figure out was that it, it started to break apart. Uh, it let off little parts of itself. And these things, uh, the little parts, did not fall down to earth as if something high in the sky was breaking up. But they took uh, paths up and away from the object, you see. And uh, I was so frightened at what it was happening that I ran into the house and I begged my mother to come and watch it with me, but she was cooking dinner, you know, <laughs> and uh, I couldn't go out again. It, it was I was so frightened and awed uh, by this thing. And then uh, years later, I realized that this had happened just a, a couple of weeks around the time of the first explosion of the atom bomb. 
you see the first experimental explosion of the atom bomb. It had happened around that time because two weeks later, after I saw the thing in the sky, the the first bomb was dropped on Hiroshima ending hmm. World War Two, and um, I um, I felt the same kind of awe and fear when reading about the atom bomb. You know, as well as I could understand it, as I had felt at watching this thing uh, fall apart in the sky. Not now, this fall is apart, fascinating. Give me, off parts of it, you're talking about a sighting that predated the Kenneth Arnold sighting by at least a couple of years. So this is a very early yes, UFO yes. sighting. Yes, I am. There are there are some early uh, sightings, but this was one in '45, and it happened just about the time as far as I can determine, of the first explosion of an atom bomb on this earth. And years later, I, I hypothesized that perhaps this was an extraterrestrial large craft, you know, uh, that had been brought to earth to s conduct surveillance on the earth because we had entered the atomic age. You know, I wanted to look into this in more detail then. So basically, it's your feeling then that what we're seeing in terms of UFOs represent extraterrestrial craft of some sort, right? Well, it's not a feeling. Uh, it's I have a hypothesis. I think my hypothesis is a little more, a less tentative, a little less tentative than McDonald's. Uh, I would say I hypothetically think that the UFOs seen in the sky that are you know chased by jet pilots caught on radar that are purely physical might well be surveillance craft from, from uh, extraterrestrial surveillance craft. Now you have put the abduction scenario I gather into somewhat of a separate category here something different and you had a book out some years back called how to defend yourself against alien abductions and I think you've raised a point here where maybe we ought to look into that a little bit so how do you defend yourself against something like this are we saying that Whitley Strieber could have defended himself if he knew what to do in advance against his experiences I think if he'd known in advance I think it's very possible that he does use some of the resistance techniques at this time uh, from what I've heard him speak you know about uh, about on the radio and the television but I'm not I don't know uh, him well enough to to know that but you see I investigated UFO cases for NICAP out here from 1957 and then around 1973 we began to get the so-called abduction cases and at first, all of us uh, here, NICAP, investigators and researchers, we were very objective uh, people. We thought perhaps that the UFO phenomenon had entered a new phase and that just instead of flying around and chasing jet pilots, that, that they were coming and uh, abducting humans. And so I, I had a database of uh, at least 200 cases of abduction by around 19. 85. But uh, then, then I started to investigate the Tahunga Canyon contact. They were abduction cases by five women, uh, logical, you know, rational, productive uh, women who lived in Tahunga Canyon, which is just uh, northeast of my own home here in Pasadena. <laughs> For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. 
To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. Okay, we'll talk about Tahunga Canyon in just a moment. I want to tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And we're talking to Ann Ruffle. She's written such books as Firestorm, How to Defend Yourself Against Alien Abduction, and Standing in God's Light. And we're talking now about what's in the book, How to Defend Yourself Against Alien Abduction. So let's talk about that. Let's continue that particular aspect of it. Now, uh, by the time I had thoroughly investigated the Tahunga Canyon abduction cases, and I use abduction in, in quotes, it became evident to me that uh, of the uh, five, well, actually there were six witnesses, but one was peripheral. Of the five witnesses that described different kinds of abduction scenarios, at least three of them were, or four of them, were able to fend off the creatures involved in the scenarios with different techniques that they had developed themselves. And uh, they described these to me. And at that time, I began to wonder if the so-called abduction scenarios were real abductions or kidnappings by physical aliens from physical UFOs, or if perhaps uh, they were a separate phenomenon that was posing as physical Mm. occupants from physical craft. You know, that raises a larger issue, too. Some people suggest that the government has been drugging people, hypnotizing them, etc., and for whatever reason, they are staging some of these abduction scenarios. So is the government one of the culprits? Uh, In all my hundreds of cases of abduction that I've investigated, I have never found any evidence to that extent except uh, just one. And I, I don't know, it's, I, I'm not one that, that goes into that hypothesis, but I, I admire people who are investigating that. But you, you do think that there's a good possibility, and this is something, by the way, Anne, we've talked about quite a bit on the Paracast, the idea that some number of what would appear to be extraterrestrial source beings are indeed possibly interdimensional beings that want us to believe that they're extraterrestrial in nature. Well, uh, that is involved in my hypothesis in how to defend yourself against alien abduction. Mm -hmm. Because uh, all throughout the millennia, in every culture, major and minor culture, there there are folklores and legends and uh, even academic studies and uh, accounts by witnesses that they have been abducted by uh, strange creatures 
and you know who uh, sexually harass them, who do, do all sorts of things to them that that are synonymous with what the so-called alien abduction uh, alien abductor uh, was doing in the United States to abductees. And so that that's what I began to study. Uh, the, the Muslims call this the third order of creation. And uh, other cultures call it uh, by different names, but it seems to be all a um, interdimensional form of creation that can enter temporarily into our Earth space-time and uh, interfere with um, with human beings. And actually, uh, the human beings are in what is called an altered state when they undergo the abduction scenario. So perhaps the altered state. Is is a medium by which these these uh, creatures uh, use, but uh, the altered state in which abductees experience these uh, harassing scenarios is so real to them that they are convinced mostly that they are uh, in reality, that they are in um, a physical reality. Okay, but the point you're saying here is that it's an illusion. It's not an illusion. I, I would call it uh, scenarios taking place in an altered realm or an alternate realm of reality. Uh, like uh, f- from the academics that I have that I have been able to study, uh, this other order of creation lives uh, around and under our Earth uh, in a in a separate dimension from the dimension we live in, which is physical space time. But that they can enter in temporarily into physical space time. Okay, so are these the same forces behind the UFOs, or are we dealing with separate things here? And now, this is a question. I personally hypothesize that there are physical UFOs from, uh, which are extraterrestrial, and their idea in coming here is to conduct surveillance on our Earth to see if we're going to blow ourselves up or something like that. But but that there is also a, a paraphysical phenomenon, perhaps even different from the third order of creation, which you know uh, produces the globes of light, the balls of light, and things like that that some people call UFOs. So it it could be a combination of extraterrestrial, uh, another paraphysical phenomenon, and scenarios produced by this third order of creation, which uh, stands between uh, angels and mankind, uh, Mm. as far as uh, academics throughout the centuries have described it, created after the angels or before before the humankind. So, Anne, let me ask you a question. This brings up a lot of really interesting topics. (laughs) I want to run this by you as... The, a paracast hypothesis of what this possibly could be, because you bring up a lot of very fascinating and I think relevant points. What if? And again, this is a, this is a hypothesis. I'm curious to know what your what your thoughts are about this. What if we're dealing with an extraterrestrial race that maybe arrived here a million or two million years ago, established an outpost where indeed these entities are on the planet. The same technology that would have allowed them to potentially come here from another star system would effectively give them the ability of traveling interdimensionally. What if these beings arrive on Earth at a time when humans aren't here, establish an outpost, and then through the years influence the genetics of the planet in a way that humans arise they actually that evolution happens but it's not completely natural it's affected by this 
extraterrestrial and simultaneously interdimensional species that is here that maybe even considers themselves effectively the landlords of the planet and the reason i'm bringing this up is because in some of the abduction stories i've read there is this recurring theme of entities telling humans we own you you are our essentially our property and that also brings up the the issue of this concern about our environment perhaps what they're actually concerned about is our effect on the environment because they're here as well and maybe that there is a potential that if we screw up the planet we're going to make their living situation difficult as well it's a big hypothesis but i'm curious to know what your feelings and thoughts are about what i just laid out to you hold that answer let's have a cliffhanger we want to hear from you if you have a comment or question about the podcast send it to News at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. I have to tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Anne Druffel, and she's author of a number of books. She's been involved in UFO research for as long as anybody can remember. <laughs> Among her books, Firestorm, and of course, How to Defend Yourself Against Alien Abduction. You see, I say, Anne, that I've been around almost as long as people can remember, and you've been around maybe an hour or two longer. Okay, but we left the cliffhanger there, so what is your answer to David's question? Okay. Now, as far as an extraterrestrial race having come to our Earth a million or two million years ago, mm-hmm. I would say that that, uh, that, is, uh, that can be speculated. Uh, I don't know if there's any evidence that could make it even a tentative hypothesis, but uh, I respect those people who suggest that. Now, when uh, they arrive on Earth when humans aren't here, and then we own you. This is where I depart, because mm-hmm. uh, I am a, um, a traditional practicing Catholic, and uh, I I go by the biblical account of the creation uh, of mankind and womankind. You see, this is where I have to depart from them when when uh, the people that say this extraterrestrial race which might have taken over the planet before humankind was here that they helped evolve us i cannot accept that uh, partially because of my faith partially because there is no evidence you see if there was evidence to back it up of course of course i would accept it really and uh, saying we own you this order of creation that i've described to you they are deceptive and shape-shifting. Uh, they, they are good and evil. I mean, they could be good and evil uh, creatures, just like humankind can, and like the angels, too. But when they tell a person who has been abducted, and, and use the quotes after abducted, we own you, I would say that that is very, very possibly their deceptive nature trying to convince their victim uh, that uh, of something that is completely false. Now, a concern about the environment, yes, uh, I can go along with that. 
especially since I saw my first UFO uh, just about the time that the first atom bomb was exploded on Earth. They are concerned about us. If they are an extraterrestrial race who has come to conduct surveillance on Earth, they worry about us. And probably they worry about uh, global warming, pollution, things like that, too. Why? Why would they worry about a planet that's not theirs? Well, I think they would worry most about what we would do with our atomic uh, warfare, because it's possible that if a, if a full-scale war broke out all over the planet, that the Earth could be set off into a different orbit and disturb this gal uh, not this galaxy, but but this solar system and possibly other solar systems. That 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 oh. is my feeling at this time. A tentative hypothesis. Well, I just want to address one thing you said about this idea of there being some kind of evidence. Um, it turns out that in the early part of the 20th century in South Africa, there were a number of objects extracted from Precambrian rock, rock that was over 200 million years old. And um, there were these metallic spheres, machined, worked technology. These were, I think there were about 100 or maybe 120 of these things pulled out of Precambrian rock that did not appear to be in any way the result of any natural process. They appeared to be machined. Um, now, clearly... That would have been a long time before humans were on the earth by either a biblical or a scientific re reckoning. So uh, this has been a very mysterious thing. And the fact that these are physical objects, that again, they do not appear to have been created by any natural process that we know of. And I qualify that, that we know of. These were metallic spheres that had etchings around them, not the kind of thing that would be created sort of randomly. What do you say when you're confronted with evidence like that? I would say that, that it's very possible that there was, you say, 100 million years ago? Uh, Pre-Cambrian, so we're, yeah, a couple hundred million years ago. Uh-huh, that possibly there was an order of being uh, similar to humans at that time that just died out after uh, a few million years. Uh, th th there could be have been stages of humans uh, that died out d during those 200 million years because uh, we, we have archaeological evidence, uh, I think, going back to a million years uh, of artifacts that science does not accept that, that seem to have been produced by humans such as ourselves. See, this well, adds to what you're saying. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I accept the fact that maybe there were other races of, of so-called humans on Earth before our present race. Well, if that's uh, the case, let's say that... Right, sure, no, this is all, of course, speculation. But that being the case, if let's say there was an advanced race, it gets a little tenuous then to talk about what potentially happened to them because for all we know and again this is all speculative but for all we know maybe they're still here it sort of fits in with the idea of there being an alternate life form of some sort existing coexisting on the planet with us at this time but in some sort of an interdimensional offset by where we can't necessarily see them unless there are very specific situations where there are interdimensional rifts open and these things appear and interact with us in any variety of ways. Because when we talk about, for example, um, these creatures interacting with human beings in a way that appears to be 
sexual. In other words, they're gathering sperm or they're, you know, they're doing things that we would look at in an odd way, but perhaps there's an agenda on their end that may be not completely scientific. We don't know. It's hard to tell. What's certainly true is that with the abduction scenario, one of the elements that we do see and we're not surprised by is a very significant element of fear. Now, that would fit in with the idea that there was an interdimensional species that perhaps fed on human emotion, specifically negative emotion, specifically fear. But who's to say that that's not a species that actually existed here a long time ago, maybe even began to colonize, expand away from the Earth? It's, it, again, this is all speculative, but it seems that when we talk about the realm of the paranormal, it's um, it's very hard to stay within the constraints of current our current scientific understanding, given that we're talking about things that we don't even have the instrumentation to really measure. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, any speculation like that is interesting to me, and you know it makes me wonder. But uh, I I still have to go back to if uh, anyone says, well, this other form of uh, a human interdimensional creation. Uh, the, the humans, not, right. not the third order of creation, if they are still here affecting us and say that we own you, that's where I have to depart because uh, I have uh, the, the faith that the Bible is correct, that God created the human race uh, as we are now. And, and then, you know, from uh, so-called Adam and Eve, it went on down to, uh, you know, Noah and, and all the others. Well, Anne, what, what do you say then in the light of scientific evidence that would indicate that human life evolved over a significant time span, certainly longer than the six or seven or eight thousand years that would be speculated, that would be postulated by the Bible? What is your feeling about the scientific theory of evolution? Hey, another cliffhanger. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, you never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to UFO investigator and author Ann Truffle. And the question was about whether there is evolution, divine creation, whatever. Anne? I would think that the, uh, the formation of the human race was a combination of creation and evolution. That, that, that's my own idea. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have, you know, I, I, it's not a hypothesis because I don't have scientific evidence. But uh, I, I don't think we were just uh, created uh, uh, 6,000 years ago. Uh, I think there was a, a evolutionary factor in there. But I, I wouldn't know how it developed except, you know, through, through Neanderthal and uh, and all of those races, I, 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 right. I wouldn't know how to, to explain that, uh, that a creator did create the human race uh, as it exists today. Right. Well, certainly one could postulate that whatever was behind the creation of human beings certainly would have been the same force that would have created the universe. We are a subset of the universe. We're contained within it. Yes, I would agree with you there, yes. Okay. So that being the case, and given what little understanding humans have, certainly about things like the age of the universe, that we're talking about a thing, a system, that is billions of years old. How does one reconcile that with the time frames postulated by the Bible? That's what I'm, I'm I guess I'm not understanding that. I'm, I'm curious to know what you think about that. Well, the, the Neanderthal men go back to about 100,000 years ago, don't they? Mm-hmm. Or possibly uh, longer. And maybe they're still here if you believe those Geico commercials. <laughs> <laughs> But it seems to me that Neanderthal man uh, was not subhuman, that he was human. He's not directly involved in our evolution, as far as I know. Uh, we, we came down another evolutionary path. Uh, I don't know that there's any science to support that, Anne. That's the problem. Uh, I don't think there is. I think that the current scientific understanding, and again, it's not a complete understanding. We don't have a clear picture of the transition from pre-humans to humans. That's certainly one of the greatest mysteries of current scientific endeavor. Right. But it is certainly in the target of scientific endeavor. You know, This is what it's trying to work towards, is to understand where that bridge came. And I think there are a lot of people who believe, and they have no way to prove this, and I'm not saying that I believe it, but there are certainly a large number of people People who believe that there is a potential for an extraterrestrial entity of some sort to be involved in some way with genetic manipulation of pre-humans and essentially filling that gap to where pre-humans became humans. It seems like that transition happened relatively quickly. So now we know based on evolutionary science that at times there are very rapid evolutionary shifts that seem to occur in nature. We, we, we definitely have been able to determine that with a good degree of scientific accuracy and certainty. That being the case, you know, what do you say to someone who says to you, well, what if I could prove that an extraterrestrial race did indeed affect pre-human evolution in order to create humans and maybe just maybe if we look at the bible maybe the bible is actually telling us that but in a very oversimplified way uh, you know when you look at the, the the story of genesis it seems to me and i'm not i would never claim to be a biblical scholar but it occurs to me that it's almost like it's a reduced story it's a simplified story that's telling something very complex but in a way that's almost overly simplified but where there is so much more information hidden underneath of the few words 
that it's almost impossible for us to really look at, for example, the, 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 the Genesis story and to say, well, okay, maybe that's not exactly what happened. Maybe it's a good indication of what happened. It's an abstraction of a complicated story that happened over a much longer time frame that even the Bible would would assume because you know so you know this of course enters into a whole other realm of of discussion about biblical history and, and I, I have to state there it's definitely not my area of expertise I'm just I've always been interested in understanding and how people interpret and evaluate the nature of reality oh my I know that's a lot to throw at you <laughs> if someone if a scientist uh, uh, you know uh, on the order of McDonald said yeah. I can prove that uh, the human race race was formed by an extraterrestrial race who had been here two million years. Yeah. If I would have to see the proof, go through all of the proof, if he could prove it, mm -hmm. I would accept it. But I would still have to accept the fact that there is the divine creator at, at the head of everything. As far as the uh, Genesis concerned, uh, there are things that I found in Genesis that, you know, uh, would enter into another enter into another discussion uh, but th there are things in Genesis that are not normally talked about uh, like the creation of, of another form of creation other than mankind there are two stories of creation in the Bible and uh, I have speculation about that but um, so, certainly maybe it would be a longer time frame than 6,000 years I am not a fundamentalist Christian uh, not at all they believe in the 6,000 year period Right. I am not at all it can go back as many as uh, what, 13 and a half billion years, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're not prescribing to that hard timeline that's been derived by essentially doing some basic math going through the Bible and trying to figure out the sort of mean age of each generation and then coming up with that number. You don't prescribe to that at all. Oh, no, I don't. I, okay. I prescribe to, to the Creator who created the first man and woman, woman with souls, you see, which are human, which are human. Well, what about extraterrestrial visitors? Would they have also been these creations, too, that God created lots of races around the universe? Well, of course, as a Catholic, the Catholic philosophy teaches that there's no reason why there shouldn't be other forms of creation on other planets and other star systems uh, that, you know, it's, it's not proven, but it's certainly in Catholic philosophy that it's entirely possible. You know, uh, Monsignor Balducci, for example, that's, this is what he believes and teaches. So that being the case, though, if we then assume that indeed, and uh, one thing that I certainly can say I personally believe is that life is abundant throughout the universe. I've said it on the show before, and I'll say it now. I think that the incredible diversity of life on Earth is probably reflective of the diversity of life that exists throughout the universe. What if we find that most of that life believes in something different than we do? What do? How do we reconcile our belief system then? That's something I, I think a lot, a lot. That's something I think about quite a bit. And I hope in my lifetime I get to have an answer, maybe just a little bit more of an understanding of well, that Well, there's a very tentative uh, Catholic idea 
that perhaps Jesus went to other planets and redeemed them like they, if they needed redemption, that he redeemed them like he redeemed us, but possibly under another form. That's a very tentative Catholic uh, philosophical idea. You know, that creates a larger issue and also opens the door to many more discussions, but this has to be the end of this one. <laughs> Anne Druffel, and she's the author of a number of books, including Firestorm, which studies the life and times of Dr. James E. McDonald, UFO researcher, and a more recent book, Standing in God's Light, of which she is a co-author, and among her other books, of course, How to Defend Yourself Against Alien Abduction. If you want to learn more about what Anne does, she has a website, andruffle.com, which is linked to at our website. And this has been an extremely enjoyable session, and we're happy to make your acquaintance, and we hope that you'll come on again in the future. I certainly will. Thank you, Gene and David. Thank you very much, and we appreciate it. it. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.